0: Good evening. evening. So we're carrying on, batting on with the sermon series, The Bible and, and tonight it's The Bible and Stress. I found it a fascinating subject and there's really not time to explore tonight uh, everything uh, that I've been thinking about, but we'll do the best that we can. If you look up the word stress in any Bible concordance, you won't find very much there. And, you know, it's not a word that I remember hearing very much when I was growing up, either, except in physics lessons. And that's a subject that I have to tell you in which I never excelled. But, you know, for most of us now, stress seems to be a word that crops up almost daily, if not in every conversation about how we are or how others are feeling. At times, I guess everyone has talked about being stressed, or finding aspects of life stressful. Situations and events put stress upon us, whether it's exams, career choices, how we look, relationships, difficulties in the family, work, targets, our mortgage payments, uncertainty, life-changing events, redundancy. Retirement, sickness, bereavement, grief. And it's not just us. Even our four-legged friends at times exhibit signs of stress, anxiety or depression. That picture was taken just hours after Sasha's uh, lifetime companion had gone to the kennel in the sky. But is stress just a symptom of modern life? Or was it back there when the Bible was written? Or was it just expressed differently then? And I think the psalm that Al read, that uh, that David wrote, and the reading that Rob brought to us, Paul's words in that second passage, reflect that they were feeling some of the symptoms that we associate with stress. And we're going to unpick that more as we think about the subject, but also I want us to try and think about how we find God in a real and authentic way when we're most under pressure. As a bit of an aside, about a week ago, I had a bit of an episode. I was out and about, I whipped my MacBook out of my bag, powered it up, only to be faced by a black, blank screen. Thinking that I'd just forgotten to charge it up, I plugged it back in as soon as I got home. Nothing. Not a sound. Not a flicker not even that little light at the end of the charging lead. My husband took a look and promptly diagnosed that the charging lead must be at fault. He knew that, of course, because it had happened to his, so that must be the case for mine. No problem. One click, a new lead was ordered, but when it arrived from Amazon next day, still nothing. MacBook was apparently dead. So it was time to go and visit the Apple doctor and to see if there was any hope left. And I have to tell you, I was lost in admiration when an incredibly young man performed the technical equivalent of cardiac massage on the lifeless machine. And I witnessed the successful resuscitation. My excitement knew no bounds. Then he proceeded to run a battery of health and fitness tests proving that not only was MacBook not dead, but he was actually in pretty good shape for a machine of his age. So, I asked innocently, what was the problem? He asked me one or two questions, and then he looked at me, I thought, rather reproachfully. Overload. Your hard drive is so full, there's hardly a gigabyte to spare. And your machine is being asked to form far too many operations at once. And at the same time, it's trying to recharge its battery. In human terms, it was a machine that was just under too much pressure, stressed. And it had reached that final point where it had just totally shut down. I've learnt my lesson. And a week later, I'm happy to report that MacBook is feeling much better, thank you. Thousands of large raw photographic images have been removed from the hard drive and stored elsewhere, and he's now got lots of nice space to work in and process. Applications that I'm not using, I'm now closing down instead of leaving them constantly running in the background. And overnight, I'm leaving Mac in a nice quiet space to recharge the battery. MacBook is back to full strength and operating so much more efficiently. And you know... That's kind of how it can be with us. Now, the human brain functions at levels way beyond the capacity of our computer processors. But we're continually processing so much new information. I'm exhausted when I've just read the news in the morning. We're storing so much of what we have to understand, know how to do, We're grappling with huge questions. We're coping with more and more demands, more pressures. We're constantly juggling the different facets of our lives. We're facing up to new experiences and challenges, and it's all at such a rapid pace. Often, we give ourselves no time to stop, to rest, and to recharge. Now, a degree of pressure is good for us. A degree of stress is good for us. It helps to produce the adrenaline that we need for challenging tasks, whether it's an exam, an interview, a marathon, asking somebody out on a date even, whether it's a public performance or even preaching a sermon. Properly managed stress can lead to our development and our growth. You know, some people need even more positive stress in their lives than others. They need the exhilarating feeling of risk taking and living life right on the edge. Have to say, that's not me. As my husband will tell you, as he's seen me recently on a bicycle. Going back to physics, though, even I get the concept that stress is produced when. In, within a material or a body as a result of pressure. And in any construction, an element of stress is needed, but too much pressure can produce a stress that's dangerous. So in a bridge, for example, doesn't matter how strong it is, there's a point where it will collapse if too many cars are on it at any one time. And there are times when even the most resilient or even the most spiritual mature of us can feel that we're approaching that danger point. We're no longer processing things as well as we were. Our moods start to swing. Our memory or concentration diminishes. We're not able to multitask in quite the same way. Our appetite changes, our sleep's disturbed. We experience unexplained aches and pains and we can wake up each morning longing to go back into long-term hibernation. If we carry on like that, we're in danger of one day shutting down completely like MacBook, or like the bridge finally buckling and giving way under the strain. Did you know that an estimated 10. million working days are lost annually in Britain due to stress? Up to five million people claim to be stressed, very stressed by their work situation. And it costs us, those of us who pay tax, an excess of four billion pounds a year. Did you know that yesterday was World Suicide Prevention Day? The biggest killer of men under 45 in the UK is suicide. Over 6,000 British lives are lost to suicide each year. And they're people just like you and me, but people who have reached that point of just wanting to shut down. And as Christians, we're not immune from these things. So where, oh where, is our God in all of this as we live lives in a society, an environment, a culture that puts us all, whatever our age under different pressures, increasing pressures. Richard Swenson in his book Margin claims this. Much of the stress in our lives comes as a result of our insistence on maintaining the illusion of control. We so desperately want to be strong enough to handle the trials and tribulations of life that we literally drive ourselves into the ground rather than admit our desperate need. Often, God allows us to reach the breaking point for our own good. Only in those moments of rare clarity that come from bottoming out will we allow ourselves to admit how little control we actually have. In those moments the only thing we can do is throw ourselves headlong into the grace of God. In these moments, the pain and suffering actually drive us to him. So let's have a think now about some things the Bible has to say. Now, I could read you lots of verses from all over the Bible that tell us not to be anxious, not to be careful, that God will take care of us. But they can almost, just hearing verses or repeating verses or reciting verses to ourselves, can become almost like a a superstitious mantra. If God is not working deeply in our lives, forming and transforming our spiritual character. So I thought we'd take a brief look at three characters of the Bible... Characters who were not perfect, who suffered some extreme circumstances that you and I would certainly describe as more than stressful. Circumstances that could have totally broken them physically, morally, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. But instead, those circumstances were the crucible in which they were refined, in which they were molded and shaped by God to be used by him because they threw themselves headlong into the grace of God. And in doing that, they learned how to exercise what we'll call spiritual disciplines. So we're going to start back in Genesis with Joseph. And reading his story again brought home to me that he really embraced the disciplines of accepting what life threw at him, of seeing God's hand in the midst of adversity, and also of exercising forgiveness. When we read his story, we see that he's one of 12 brothers, and he started life with a degree of arrogance that must alienated him from the others. So much so that they conspired against him, ripped from his back the multicolored coat that his father had given him, threw him into a pit, sold him to slave traders, and then lied to their distraught father. And you think you had a dysfunctional family. Despite being a victim of gross domestic abuse and of child trafficking, the boy did good when he got to Egypt. But just as he was on that upward trajectory to success, the woman who had tried to seduce him told malicious lies, defamed his reputation, and he was cast into a prison. And there he languished. We don't know for how long, but for some good time. And we know he was forgotten and had plenty of time to brood on the evil that had befallen him. He had plenty of time to lament on his pretty awful lot in life. You might think he was a good candidate for post-traumatic stress disorder or certainly the belief that God had forsaken him. And maybe he did go through those battles and temptations. But the story relates how. As he came through wherever Joseph went, God was with him. And I think the secret lies in his ability to see the hand of God in all the events of his life, not just the good ones. So finally, when he was exalted as governor of Egypt and he was reunited with his brothers, he was able with grace to forgive all their wrongs. And he said this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. And we just think, don't we, God, grant us the grace to look at the circumstances of our lives, the stresses, the pressures, the good, the bad, the disappointments, the mistreatments by others, and say and see how God intends it for good, to accomplish things in us and prepare us for what he has for us. The psalm that we read, we believe, was written by David. Now, as a young boy, David was left out in the wild to look after his father's sheep, ward off lions and bears. As safeguarding coordinator in this church, I do not recommend that that's a good way now to occupy our children it seems that in those days and at that time, it was perfectly acceptable. As a self-appointed child soldier, he killed the giant of a man who had struck fear into the entire Jewish army. (coughs) Although he was anointed as the future king, he had to bide his time, soothing the irascible king Saul, because David's music was the only thing, it seemed, that could drive away the evil spirits that plagued the king. (coughs) Yet despite this ministry, Saul was consumed with jealousy and time and again he tried to kill David and David was forced to run away to flee for his life. Later on, his own sons rebelled against him. They raised armies against him. They threatened to take his life. And we have to ask what greater sorrow could there be for a father? There was also the question of his adulthood with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband in attempt to cover his tracks. So just put yourself in David's place for a moment. You've known God in your life, as many or most of us have in some measure. You've known what it was, as the psalm said, to be lifted out of the mire, the mess of your life, and have a new song in your mouth. But now your enemies have conspired together to kill you and have instigated a (laughs) widespread campaign of slander and lies. Your reputation is lost. You are badly spoken of even amongst people that were once your friends. And when they see you coming, they turn away. They walk the other way. They don't want to be identified with you. So how are your stress levels doing now? You're gripped by anxiety, by depression. And you have to face the fact that many of your troubles are a result of your own sin, despite all that God has done for you. So you're also wrestling with guilt. Your health's affected. You don't have the strength to do daily tasks. Your body's wasting away. Wherever you look, it seems that terror is staring you in the face. What can you do? You could seek counselling, and that might help in a measure. You could turn to other palliatives that might not help. Alcohol, substance abuse. In David's shoes, you might even consider taking your own life. (coughs) But David turned the depths of despair into the music room in which he created probably the most famous songs and poems of all time that exalted his God. Psalms in which he poured out his heart, acknowledged his sins and his failures, and gave thanks for the goodness and the grace of his God, his rock and his fortress, his tower and his strength, and in which he uttered his sorrow and his regret for his sins. He truly knew the disciplines of repentance and of worship. And because of that, despite the trail of devastation behind him, he is still described as a man after God's own heart. Now, surely that'll give us hope, won't it? That whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever we've been, there's a place for us in God's heart. But like David, we have to learn to exercise those same spiritual disciplines of repentance. It's not just a once and for all thing, I believe, and also of praise and worship of our God, whatever the circumstances. The passage that Rob read was written by Paul to the Corinthians. And I think it demonstrates very clearly, among other things, the particular stresses of ministry. Elsewhere in his letters, it's clear that he recognized the reality of spiritual as well as physical and human opposition. And Paul had to develop some (laughs) spiritual disciplines disciplines of holding fast to his faith in times of hardship, trial, and persecution. Disciplines of engaging in spiritual warfare. Paul knew the pain of being maligned by others, of having his ministry called into question. But he knew how to hold fast to his calling and to the Lord who had called him. In Ephesians 6, he warns us of the strategies and tricks of the devil, the wicked spirits in heavenly realms that put us as God's people under pressure so as christians we face a whole other level of pressure and stress the people who are carefree and know nothing of god perhaps don't face in the same way and that's why he can say elsewhere in the letter we are hard pressed on every side but not crushed perplexed but not in despair persecuted but not abandoned struck down but not destroyed And for any one of you who is involved in any kind of ministry, whether it be with children, whether it be with old people, whether it be young people, whether it be in prayer, whatever your ministry is, you may not face shipwrecks, you may not face floggings, hopefully, or imprisonment, but you will face times of great great discouragement, it's almost certain. You will face times of being criticised or questioned by others, You will face times of weariness. You will face times of a sense that it's all going nowhere fast. That's not the time to give up. The time to give up is when it's all going well and you feel God is calling you to something else and asking you to hand the mantle on, the baton on to others The time of discouragement is not necessarily the time to give up. It's the time to engage in spiritual warfare, to hold fast to the faith and calling, to pray against the discouragements and the weariness, to pray blessings on those who discourage or criticize, and to call upon the Lord to pour out his spirit. As we finish, we'll also just think about Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Because Jesus modelled the complementary spiritual disciplines of both service and solitude. And, you know, we have to develop both of those for the good of our own souls and for the sake of God's kingdom on earth. When the disciples had been arguing over which would have the highest place of honour in heaven, Jesus, the servant king, set the bar for service. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you know when the doubts come and the questions come and there's a big black crows metaphorically sitting on a branch of a tree outside your window, trying to cast you into despair. To get up and serve God amongst the people of God, or wherever he calls you, is a tremendous liberating force. But there can be a problem with service. A problem that too many of us find our identity and sense of purpose in service alone. And unless that's balanced by practicing the discipline of solitude, eventually, we'll burn ourselves out. We'll become weary. We'll become irritable with others, particularly the others who we think are leaving it all to us. And if that goes on unchecked, finally, we may either shut down or break down. Interestingly, last year in the US, a significant number of successful Christian leaders recognised the need to step aside and bring the rhythm of life back into balance before that happened to them. Jesus talked about the importance of abiding in the vine. The Gospels tell us that he frequently withdrew, often to wilderness places, to be alone with God the Father. There's something about getting out there, isn't there, to the wilderness. It's an interesting thing on the BBC this week um, of taking young people who have really, really troubled and dysfunctional backgrounds out to live in the wild. Nothing Christian about it, but there's stories where that being out there, away from the pressures and out in the wilderness places and having to survive and work together did wonders in, in building their capacity inwardly, emotionally, mentally. And so on. Jesus went out often to the wilderness places to be alone with his Father. It was there he recharged the battery. There he restored his own soul. There he heard the Father's voice. There he gained the spiritual power and strength to preach and teach and heal and cast out demons. Mark says that often he got up very early in the morning while it was still dark. He left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. If you're like me, you're not up to much first thing in the morning. But there has to be a time, a place, a space where you draw aside and just enjoy the solitude and invite the presence of God. Invite God to walk with you, hear what he says. Later on in chapter 6, Mark reminds us that Jesus called his disciples, and that includes you and me, to join him in solitude and silence. Because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat. Ever had days like that? So much going on, you don't have a chance to eat? Jesus said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. We neglect that drawing aside to quiet places at some point in the week at our peril. So in summary, stress is a fact of life. It affects us all. There's no escaping it. And when the pressures are greatest, we often need others to stand with us, support us and pray for us. But, you know, the spiritual disciplines that we've touched upon have got really significant correlations with widely accepted strategies for managing stress. And if, I think if we really develop those disciplines step by step with Jesus they will give us the means to do much to mitigate the effects of pressure and stress upon our lives. And more importantly, perhaps, they will enhance our spiritual formation and growth. One little word of warning, though. People of many faiths and none have discovered the value of spiritual disciplines. But we have to discover the grace of God in Christ Jesus in every aspect of our lives. We all have to come to that place of an encounter with him. (coughs) You may have had encounters with Jesus, but we need to encounter him over and over again. It may be that you've heard the words but never really had that authentic experience where you have either physically or metaphorically knelt at the foot of the cross and offered up your life to him. If you haven't, then come to that place. But as we go on in our walk with God, we all have to lay our lives before him, our lives with their ups and downs, with the success and the mess. We have to lay it all at the feet of Jesus and we have to invite him to wash us, to renew us, to transform us, to give us the strength and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the understanding and the wisdom to walk honourably with him each day and letting him work in us being open when the Spirit prompts us to face up to aspects of our character that are not really that attractive. And let God come in and change us. That is what it means, I think, to throw ourselves headlong into the grace of God. We should all do it, because we'll be the better for it.